Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening our eyes to a new view of life. Thanks for joining us today. You know, 130 episodes ago, we started this podcast with one simple desire to help us all open our eyes and see ourselves and life and our opportunities in a new way. Because we can't be what we can't see. At the core of our behavior is how we see the world and our place in it. So I hope today, as you listen to this podcast, you get a new view of you. And that view can empower you to take action to reach your goals, to grow and become the person that you're meant to become. Because I believe you are meant to do remarkable things. And to do that, you need to see what you can be. And if you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with a friend. It just may be what they need in their life today. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about what happens when we don't feel like it, we don't want to, and we do it anyway. Julie McSorbe and her friend Liz were excited one afternoon as they headed to California's San Luis Obispo Bay. Julie and her husband had been to the bay on Avila Beach the day before and were amazed at the large number of whales surfacing in the bay. As Julie tried to convince her friend to go with her and kayak out to where the whales were last seen, Liz was apprehensive. She was deathly afraid of sharks. But Julie, who had taken her kayak out on the bay numerous times, told Liz that it would be a great experience for her to try. So. She said, the kayaks are so stable, they'll never dump over. You'll be safe. They packed up their things and left about 8 in the morning. By 8.30, they were in the water. But the early morning hours were quiet without much whale activity or even a whale sighting among them or the dozen or so others out on the water. But soon, whale spouts could be seen a few hundred feet away. These whale spouts are noisy. As a column of moist air is forcefully expelled through the whale's blowhole when the whale surfaces to breathe. For some species of whales, this can be seen from many kilometers away. Well, as Julie and Liz paddled along, two large humpback whales swam towards them. Now, adult humpback whales are about 50 feet long and weigh 44 tons. That's the same size as about six adult African elephants put together. Humpback whales often migrate 10,000 miles a year. Think about that. 10,000 miles is just a little less than one half of the distance of the circumference of the earth. That is a lot of swimming. Their diet consists mostly of krill and small fish. They use bubbles to confuse large schools of small fish, then surface from below with their huge mouths wide open, capturing hundreds of pounds of fish in a single bite. These whales can eat one and a half tons of krill and fish in a day. These whales typically feed for about a third of the year, and balance of the year, they're migrating to mating and birthing locations. Well, typically, humpback whales are not predatory or dangerous to humans, but many people have been killed by getting in the path of a feeding, hungry whale. Humpbacks don't have teeth. Instead, they have a series of 400 baleen plates instead of teeth. These overlapping plates are made from keratin, the same substance as found in your hair and fingernails. To filter food, they take in large volumes of water and seed their food through the baleen plates. Well, Julie and Liz were in their double kayak with several other people all swimming towards the whales. 
The whales weren't breaching or jumping out of the water, but they would surface so their humpbacks were seen on top of the water. So Julie and Liz paddled closer to get a look. Liz gradually got more comfortable with being so close to the whales, and she was holding the camera and videotaping. Sometimes they'd hear a crackling sound in the distance, and this crackling sound is made when tight-packed schools of fish swim frantically as they're trying to escape the whales. When they heard the crackling, they would turn to watch the whales surface through the school of fish, taking huge swaths of fish in their mouths. Well, Julie and Liz got more brave and followed the whales further out toward open ocean. As the water warmed in the heat of the day, the whales got more active. Then, without warning, they heard crackling all around and underneath their kayak, and they immediately knew a whale was going to surface, and they knew it was going to be very close to them. Julie was looking to the right of the boat. Liz was looking to the left. The whale surfaced with its 10-foot-wide jaw open. The bottom of the jaw dumped their kayak to the left, directly into the whale's mouth. It all happened so fast. Liz went down into the whale's mouth first, with Julie following after. Then the whale closed its mouth and went back down into the water. It happened so quickly, Julie couldn't see anything. She doesn't remember if her eyes were open or closed. She knew she was in the whale's mouth, and she was shocked, and all she could think to herself was, hold your breath. As she felt the whale pull them under, she thought, how far can this whale drag us down? She wondered if the whale opened its mouth if she and Liz would have enough air to surface from deep below the ocean's surface. Well, after about 10 seconds, the whale did open its mouth slightly, and because they had their life jackets on, Liz and Julie popped up to the surface of the ocean. As soon as they could talk, they immediately asked each other if they were okay. A retired fireman who watched the whole thing came over. He checked their arms and legs and checked for any injuries. He wanted to make sure they were in one piece, and he helped them into a nearby boat. Liz was in shock. She was white as a ghost and didn't say much. Inside the whale's mouth, she thought she was going to be crushed by the giant jaws, and she was terrified. Well, they helped her get dry and warm, and soon they realized their keys to the car and other possessions were still in the whale's mouth. Liz took her shirt and shook it out, and that was when about five or six fish fell onto the ground. The fish had jumped into their clothes in the panic. When you go back and watch the video, and yes, the entire experience is captured on video, you can see the two of them sliding right into the whale's mouth as he closes it, and the only thing sticking out of the whale's mouth is Julie's right arm. What Julie later learned is that it's easy for sea lions, for example, to get taken into a humpback's mouth because the whales and the sea lions are feeding on the same fish. The throat of the whale is really only about the size of a grapefruit. Anything that's larger will be expelled by the whale after it has sifted through its mouth the krill and the smaller fish. Well, perhaps the most famous whale-swallowing story in history is that of Jonah. In that story, the people of Nineveh were Assyrians, and God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh and tell the people there to repent and change their ways. Not an easy message to deliver, and most of all, these people were savage and brutal. Jonah would likely be killed in the attempt. Jonah didn't want to do what God wanted him to do. He didn't see how he could do it, so Jonah ran in the opposite direction. He went to the seaport of Joppa, 
There he boarded a ship headed for what is probably present-day Spain. Soon, a violent storm rose on the ocean, and the ship's crew began to fear for their life. The captain became convinced that God's wrath towards someone on board was the cause of the storm. The crew and the passengers pointed to Jonah, and he told them, Take me, cast me forth upon the sea, so shall the sea be calm unto you, for I know that for my sake this great tempest is upon you. Well, the men threw Jonah overboard, and as Jonah sank into the water, the storm immediately ceased, and a great fish swallowed him. Jonah knew all was lost, but this wasn't God's plan for him. Yes, he was in the open ocean. Yes, he was stuck in the belly of a whale, but it wasn't over. God is a God of second chances. So the Lord spake unto the fish, and it vomited out Jonah upon the dry land. Well, God comes to Jonah a second time. And this time, Jonah is smarter, wiser, and more willing to do what is asked. This time, he still doesn't want to do what God is asking, go to Nineveh, but he does it anyway. So the smarter, more capable, more disciplined, more willing Jonah does his duty. Now, this is a great story for you and me, because there are a lot of things we don't want to do in life. We don't want to eat a healthy diet or maintain the discipline of exercise or go to that business meeting that may be uncomfortable or apologize or write that proposal we've been putting off for weeks. Whatever it is, there is power when we, like Jonah, do it anyway. Maybe you're like most people, and when you encounter things you don't want to do, you wait for some motivation. Perhaps the kind of motivation that God sends your way is like that of Jonah. You get to experience the consequences of not doing what you should do. It reminds me of a story of a parrot. A young man named Sam received a parrot as a gift. The parrot had a bad attitude and an even worse vocabulary. Every word out of the bird's mouth was rude, obnoxious, and laced with profanity. Sam tried and tried to change the bird's attitude by consistently saying only polite words and playing soft music and anything else he could think of to clean up the bird's language. Finally, Sam was fed up and he yelled at the parrot and the parrot yelled back and Sam shook the parrot and the parrot got angrier and even ruder. So in desperation, Sam threw up his hands, grabbed the bird and threw the bird in the freezer. For a few minutes, the parrot squawked and kicked and screamed. Then suddenly there was total quiet. Not a peep was heard for over a minute. Well, fearing that he'd hurt the parrot, Sam quickly opened the freezer door. The parrot calmly stepped out onto Sam's outstretched arm and said, I believe I may have offended you with my rude language and actions. I'm sincerely remorseful for my inappropriate transgressions, and I fully intend to do all I can to correct my rude and unforgivable behavior. Sam was stunned at the change in the bird's attitude, and he was about to ask the parrot what made such a dramatic change in his behavior. When the bird asked a question, may I ask what the turkey did to offend you? Well, sometimes it's helpful to see the consequences of our refusal to change or to do what we don't want to do. And maybe like Jonah, God is trying to get you to go in a certain direction and you're being a bit stubborn about it. Do you think that's true? I know it's true for me. For some time now, I've been nudged and inspired and given opportunities to go in a direction that God wants me to go. And for whatever reason, I've been a bit slow to respond. 
And maybe you have something similar happening in your life, something you really don't want to face or do. Do you know what that thing is? And how will you turn to do what you don't want to do? Well, I've learned that sometimes we have to get swallowed a time or two in order to get really smart or motivated about how to improve our approach to business or life or our health. And there are plenty of people around, myself included, who have been swallowed and thrown up on the beach, so to speak, and learned the hard way to find our daily discipline. And the thing is, we don't have to get swallowed by life or things. If we face the things we don't want to do and do them anyway, we can avoid whatever consequences may come our way because we're doing the things needed to avoid getting swallowed. You know, many people are mistakenly under the impression that they can't act until they feel motivated to do so. And here's what most of us don't understand. Motivation is not a permanent fix. We may find motivation for a short time or feel motivated in the moment, but motivation is not constant. If you get it, you rarely hold on to it for a long period of time. So if we're waiting to find motivation for the things that we don't want to do, or the things we must do every day for a long period of time, then we are in trouble because motivation usually doesn't last that long. You know, the definition of motivation is to have a motive. And the definition of motive is to have a lasting reason for doing something. And studies show that we are motivated very little during our lifetime, somewhere between 10 and 20% of the time. The remaining 90% of the time, we must find our own motive to do what we set out to do. So how do we train our mind to move beyond motivation for our behavior and for our behavior to be driven without it, to be our best self even when we don't want to do something? What do you do on the days when you don't want to? What do you do when you're tired or worn out or don't want to get out of bed? What do you do when you don't want to do the same old activities in your business over and over again? Well, here's what I've learned. Don't give in to the immediate gratification of the thing. Give in instead to your true motive. When the thoughts come to you that you're tired or don't want to, do this. Imagine a leaf floating down the river. While you can see the leaf, and that's only a matter of 30 to 60 seconds before that leaf will float out of your view, during that time in which you can see the leaf, you can tell yourself whatever you want. You're tired or don't want to or whatever. But when the leaf is gone, when you can't see it anymore, then turn off the switch, get up, get started, run, work out, try, set appointments, work your contact list, give yourself to your goal, and do what you know you can and should do, even if you don't want to. And you'll find after a while, the time needed to let the leaf float down the stream diminishes, and you will have true discipline to do what you set out to do. Here's how one author put it. In his book, The Antidote, Oliver Berkman points out that much of the time when we say things like, I just can't get out of bed early in the morning, or I just can't get myself to exercise, what that really means is we can't get ourselves to feel like doing these things. After all, no one is tying you to your bed every morning. Intimidating bouncers aren't blocking the entrance to the gym. Physically, nothing is stopping you. You just don't feel like it. But as Berkman asks, 
Who says you need to wait until you feel like doing something in order to start doing it? Think about it for a minute, because it's really important. Somewhere along the way, we've all bought into the idea without consciously realizing it, that to be motivated and effective, we need to feel like we want to take action. We need to be eager to do so. I really don't know why we believe this, because it is 100% nonsense. Yes, on some level, you need to be committed to what's going on. You need to want to see the project finished or get healthier or get an earlier start to your day, but you don't need to feel like doing it. In fact, Berkman points out, many of the most prolific artists, writers, and innovators have become so in part because of their reliance on work routines that force them to put in a certain number of hours a day. No matter how uninspired or in many instances hungover, they may have felt. Berkman reminds us that motivation is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. This is the power that happy people have, the ability to do a thing despite their feelings and make that thing part of their ongoing routine. For example, I believe that God has given us paths to follow and given us things that we should do things that are right instead of wrong. And we may not want to do what he's asking. Many people don't. But he gives us these guidelines like forgiving others or being kind because he knows in the end these things make us happy. Likewise, there are things in your day or business that you know you need to do. Exercise in the morning, be diligent in working your business at the time you set it aside to do it. And doing these things with or without motivation will in the end make us healthier and happier. So remember, motivation is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. You know, for years, I've been part of a remarkable company that invites people, leaders, to build a business and lead teams. But only a small fraction of the people ever end up really being successful. Why? Well, they all have the same amazing product, the same systems, the same opportunity. What's the difference? Well, here's what I've learned. Winners and losers, so to speak, have the same goals. Both start the same, and I'm certain losers wrote down those goals, even made a dream board and envisioned their success. And I'm sure every person competing to go to the Olympics, for example, wants to win a gold medal. So what's the difference between the winners and the losers? Well, here's what I've observed. The winners didn't need motivation. They were people who put a system in place in their life or business, and they established small habits of discipline that carried them forward to success. And they understood that every time they did what they didn't want to do, they were one step closer to their goal. As compared to others who didn't have a system, when the mood arose that they didn't want to do something, they had no system to carry them past their mood. And if there were anything we could teach young people today, it would be this simple lesson that happiness is not found following what makes you feel. You know, years ago, author and philosopher Joseph Campbell coined the phrase, follow your bliss. And since then, many experts have used the term follow your bliss to teach the principle of doing what makes you happy, of finding what makes you tick, or discovering your calling in life. Well, later in his life, Joseph Campbell said if he could go back and do it over, he would have coined the phrase, follow your blisters, instead of follow your bliss. You see, over time, Campbell noticed people had followed their bliss in a way that eliminated work and sacrifice from their life. 
when in fact, life's experience teaches us it's in the work and the sacrifice that we find what makes us happy. As a result, people hadn't found what made them happy. And he learned that the rich things in life, the stuff that really matters, comes from those times in which we stretch the most. It's funny, isn't it? We often avoid doing the things we don't want to do, but struggle to do the things we want to do. In a recent Gallup poll, 61% of adults currently employed said, given the choice, they would own their own business rather than work for someone else. Why? Well, I think it's part of our nature. When we're about creating and teaching and constructing and exercising our own sense of leadership, we're happier. There really is a sense of purpose and bliss in owning your own business. Yet, at the moment, only 10% of adults are self-employed. If 61% of adults say they want to own their own business, then why don't they do it? Because doing so takes work and leadership and involves risk and demands change. And for some people, these are the things they don't want to do. So then, how do you create a culture in your life that enables you not to worry about what you don't want to do and focus instead on the habits that drive excellence in your life? Well, none of us, myself included, are perfect at this. We're all trying to improve. But there are things that can help us when we don't want to, to do it anyway. A few years ago, for the first time in history, at the end of the final round of the annual Scripps National Spelling Bee, a record eight students remained standing. All eight were crowned champions. Why? Because round after round, they all answered the questions correctly. They spelled words like Samorsier or Logodoruse correctly. How did this happen? How did eight kids become smarter than the spelling bee producers and spell every word right that came their way? Well, some experts said the words were too easy and the spellers too good. And in a way, they were right. You see, usually kids will misspell a word in a round, and that misspelling ends the round, leaving plenty of words on the list. But this time, the kids exhausted the list. So the spelling bee officials ran out of words. Why have the spellers become so good? Well, in 2018, a computer software called Spell Pundit was launched. This software drills kids on past editions of the spelling bee word list. And there has been a growth in the number of coaches who coach on this. These coaches teach the origin of words. You see, a good speller has a bank of memorized words in their head. But a great speller not only knows a lot of words, but can basically spell words they haven't practiced before. How? Because coaches have taught them the logic and structure of language. For example, if you've been trained on the origins of language, you can learn the art of spelling. Science words, for example, like Teddy Go Nye died, are a species of an insect. Go ahead, take a shot at spelling Tetagoniadide. It's spelled T-E-T-T-I-G-O-N-I-I-D. And it's likely you didn't get the I-I-D at the end. But if you knew it was derived from the Greek for cicada, you would know the patterns for the prefix and ending of the word. Yes, a computer software helped the kids improve. And yes, they had coaches. But here's what you don't know. Half of the eight kids crowned as champions in 2019 came from Plano, Texas. And these kids learned from the same coach, studying together several hours a day, and this created a culture of excellence. 
Many days, the kids didn't want to come to another day of doing the same thing, spelling words over and over again. Yet, they did. The coach says he tries to bring the entrepreneurial spirit into the kids' thinking. They participate in designing the strategies for the spelling bee success. They analyze weaknesses, and kids share tips with each other on how to prepare. They become coaches for each other in the process, and this abundant approach creates a culture that goes beyond memorization and becomes a center for excellence in spelling. In other words, their excellence was an inside job. The culture was to do the best they could possibly do. The culture was to make things exciting so they could do what they did not want to do. Now, we could take a lesson from these spelling bee kids. They showed up every day. Like them, we could adopt a constant passion for improving and refining our strategy and bringing new and fresh perspectives to old routines. For example, in your exercise, study and learn about it. Try new routines, give old things new life, and this will help you do it anyway. In your business, change up your team meetings, analyze how you can improve, make a science of it, and this will help you do it anyway. Also, the Spelling Bee Kids had an abundant approach. So help others all you can. This is key because when you do this, it gives you added motive. Abundance helps you do what you don't want to do. You know, my favorite story about doing what comes easy comes from the Lion King. You may remember that because of fear and confusion and lies from others, Simba had run away from home and was living a life in which he did not very much. He never did what he didn't want to do. He'd been living the Hakuna Matata lifestyle. In Swahili, Hakuna Matata means to take it easy. Don't do what you don't want to do. But the stars in the sky, a feeling inside of him and his sense of self drew Simba home. At one point in the movie, his father, in spirit form, appears and tells him, you've forgotten who you are, so you've forgotten me. Look inside yourself, Simba. You are more than what you have become. And I would say the same to you. You have immense potential. You've been wonderfully made on purpose by a God who knows you. I don't know your individual circumstances, and perhaps you were not even planned by your parents, but you were planned by God. And you have been endowed with gifts that are meant to take you from who you are to who you are meant to become. And these are incredible gifts. But like Jonah, to realize these gifts, to truly be who you're meant to be, you have to do a few things you don't want to do. You have to not want to, but do it anyway. Think of it like this. Life takes the shape of an iceberg. You see, ice has nine-tenths or 90% of the density of water. That means on average, 90% of an iceberg is below the water surface. The same goes for us. We only feel like doing what needs to be done 10% of the time. That's the stuff above the waterline in life. The other 90% of the time, the things that drive results are the work without motivation below the surface. This is what truly moves our life. Last, when you live your life relying solely on motivation, it can be a very sporadic, faddish type of life, moving from one fun thing to the next exciting thing. And this type of living can have a sinking effect because what happens when there's nothing exciting immediately in front of you? 
Do you know how to act? You know, orcas or killer whales are well known for their intelligence and for their remarkable hunting techniques. And a population of orcas off the coast of the Iberian Peninsula have been gaining attention over the last several years because they've been attacking and seeking boats in the area. The first recorded attack occurred in the Strait of Gibraltar. These attacks involved a small group of whales attacking rudders of small sailboats before breaking off and swimming away. In June and November of 2022, a pair of attacks caused two boats to sink. The attacks are being caused by nine whales in two different groups. At first, experts thought the attacks were led by an adult female who was retaliating for an interaction she had had in which she was injured by the rudder of a boat. The whales only attack sailboats and always go for the rudder. But after further examination, they found this was not the reason. Researchers went out in their own boat, and that boat was attacked and sunk. And they concluded that the whales were just having fun. They concluded that the attacks are a fad done by whales who are motivated by fun and excitement. And they're certain the attacks will land when the whales get bored with it. Orca researchers called this a fad. Living our life and only doing the things when we're motivated by the exciting is living following the latest fad. And while it may be exciting while you're motivated to do something, how do you feel when the excitement is gone? You know, Stephen Covey once said the definition of integrity is doing something you've decided to do long after the emotion of making the decision to do it has passed. When you don't want to, and you do it consistently anyway, you find integrity, wholeness, and better living. So, as we end today, remember, we all have things and times, many times in life in which we don't want to do what we know we need to do. And unlike Jonah, we can avoid being swallowed by the consequences of things when we don't want to, but we do it anyway. We prosper when we fill our days with the habits of doing what we don't want to do. Remember, motivation is for amateurs. The rest of us just show up and get to work. And like the spelling bee kids, keep things fresh, be abundant, and you will build in motivation for your work. And if you do this, you will avoid living a fad-type life. And in the end, you'll find a life of integrity and happiness. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to join us next week as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.